Live from between the beautiful Promised Land Hotel and Okinawa Nails in sunny Cairo, just west of Thomasville, Georgia. By popular demand, it's more wacky Bible stories. Starring in alphabetical order, Saul, Joshua, Jonathan, John, Aiken, Mikhail, David, Nabal, the town elder dancers, the entire Philistine army, and Ezekiel. As a reminder, this has nothing to do with critical thinking and is for informational purposes only. This is just an exhibition. This is not a competition. Please, no wager. Start out with the first book of Samuel, chapter 18. This is about King Saul and David. This is when David is just a mere boy in Saul's kingdom, long before he turns to amateur peeping. But as I'm sure you know, David is the one who stood up to the giant and killed him by hurling a high-velocity projectile at the giant's head via a sling. And if the rock didn't kill him, then the sword that David took from the now unmoving giant surely did as David thrust it into the giant's unconscious body. Why, the whole battle echoes the bravery of someone in modern times firing a bullet into the head of a knife-wielding opponent from across the street. The courage it takes to stand well out of range and knock someone out with a distance weapon truly boggles the mind. Young David was applauded for his skill and was mightily revered. His name was heralded throughout the kingdom and soon he befriended Jonathan, Saul's son. In fact, he and Jonathan became such close friends that Jay gave D his varsity jacket, his sword, his bow, and his girdle. We're talking seriously close friends here. One evening, after a harsh day killing Philistines, David returns to the kingdom, hearing of women rejoice of his accomplishments. Hail David, slayer of tens of thousands of people that we don't like. Why, King Saul himself has only slain mere thousands. And loudly did they harumph. <laughs> At least that's how Saul heard it. Saul's anger and jealousy burns within him. How dare someone kill more people than he? As king, he should kill the most! Soon he fears that David's superior Philistine-killing skills will land him his own kingship, thereby displacing Saul. He can't let this happen and devises a plan that is as simple as it is lousy. He finds David playing with his hand and hurls a javelin at him! I have no idea what playing with his hand means, but there it is. David avoids this demise, or simply isn't where the javelin lands. I'm not sure which. The scripture is vague and unpleasant. Then David just avoids Saul, and Saul's anger ferments to a lovely 100 proof. So in an effort to get David closer, Saul makes David captain. I can only assume that David isn't aware of Saul's attempt to murder him, and just dismisses javelins being heaved in his general direction as an occupational hazard. I, for one, would find the presence of a spear in the wall where I had just been standing disturbing. Saul then offers his daughter Merab to David as a wife, but only on condition that he goes into more battles. He is hoping that the numbers will eventually catch up with David and soon he'll feel the cold taste of Philistine steel in his liver. However, David doesn't accept Saul's offer. Now, Saul should have realized that as captain, David already has to frequently go into battle at his behest. It's sort of like offering your secretary a bonus for typing a letter. But more importantly to David, he doesn't feel he's worthy of being a prince, so he declines. And a good thing, too, because Merab shortly gets married to some other guy that's not part of our story. Let us never speak of Merab again. And besides... 
Another of Saul's daughters, Mikhail, is already in love with David and does so long for the touch of a boy that kills tall men, which perchance reflects some type of fatherly abandonment issues. So Saul, never one to give up, tries the same trick again, but with Mikhail, offering her in exchange for more battling. But guessing David's response, he covertly tells his servants to convince David that Saul loves him and desperately wants him to be a prince. They do, to which David replies, I don't take this lightly. I'm just a poor dirt farmer by trade. I can't be a prince. I have no money, and it is generally agreed upon that princes should have money. The servants relay this to Saul post-haste, to which he replies, Go tell David that I don't care if he's poor. He needs no more of a dowry than 100 foreskins of the Philistines. <laughs> yes, it says 100 foreskins. This either means that Saul wants 100 men dead, or he's really into massive multi-person homosexual gangbangs. MMHGB. Upon hearing this news, David becomes very excited. Extricating sackfuls of foreskins is his specialty. In an effort to impress his soon-to-be father-in-law, he kills 200 Philistines, and after utilizing his admirable genitalia butchering skills, shows up on King Saul's doorstep with a veritable buttload of Philistine prepuce. Much to the dismay of Saul that David Torrent dispatched in his quest for penile hoods. Eventually, David and Mikhail are joined in holy matrimony. Later, while contemplating how to dispose of his bloody dowry, the true genius of King Saul emerges. Using his mighty intellect and hours of pondering, he deduces that as king, he has the power to just send men to kill David, and within hours, dozens of white-gowned, sword-wielding assassins are headed to David's house like a throng of racist ninjas. All that clanging around makes a lot of noise, and Jonathan soon learns of his father's plan. He jumps on his horse and heads off to save the life of his friend, or at the least, get his favorite jacket back before it becomes irreversibly stained with blood. Tide having not been invented yet. Jonathan warns David of his father's evil doings, telling David to hide while Jonathan tries to reason with his insane patriarch. They then depart, one heading towards Saul, the other away. Jonathan meets his dad and asks him what is his major malfunction. He reminds his father of just how many Philistines David has killed. Since it's a larger death toll than Saul himself has commanded, perhaps this wasn't the best persuasive technique. Saul smiles at his son and agrees not to slay David as ominous music plays, informing the audience that deception might be afoot. Jonathan passes the 411 to David, who ignorantly returns to the kingdom with a new vigor in his step, ready to remove more Philistine reproductive parts. Suddenly, war erupts. Or rather, war continues, since these people routinely march in battalions, killing just about everybody they meet. David heads off to the melee! So, pretty much, same camel dung, different day. Later, while again playing with his hand, Saul appears in another blundered attempt at javelin-induced death. Apparently, David decides two javelins stuck in the wall where he was just standing is too much of a coincidence, and he flees to his house where Mikhail is waiting. Moments later, Saul's men burst through the front door! Snap into a slip jam! Mikhail tells David she loves him as he ducks out the window, replying simply, she quickly bundles goat hair into David's bed, and when Saul's men enter the bedroom, she tells them David rushed home to bed complaining that he hasn't felt this bad since that Ronald Reagan film. Saul arrives to see the sick man for himself, and quickly sees through the ruse. He is outraged. He asks his daughter, Why do you deceive me so? Why don't you let me kill my enemy? What, are you gonna pull that, he's my husband crap on me again? You sicken me. Eventually, Saul's men find David, but they become filled with... <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord. And they do not betray David. This little scenario is repeated several times. Finally, David contacts Jonathan and asks him, What's up with your pa? What did I do to make him want to kill me? Jonathan surely doesn't know. But since the festival of meat-eating is almost at hand, 
no joke. They decide that Jonathan shall eat with his father while David does not, and Jonathan shall try to gauge just how pissed Saul is. Apparently the fact that someone has repeatedly tried to murder you isn't sufficient reason to mistrust them. Before acting on your already considerable knowledge of the attempts, you must first measure and apply a number to their feelings. Group hug, everyone. So while at the festival table, Saul makes a complete ass of himself about David, and Jonathan realizes that his father is really, really pissed. Jonathan rates his anger a 10. David flees yet again. He finds a priest that feeds him and just so happens to be in possession of the sword of Goliath, the very sword David used to ensure Goliath's death. This being several years before the invention of the telephone, the priest doesn't really know that Saul and David are on the outs. After eating, David is off to another adventure and manages to build a small army over the next few weeks and months. But this other guy, Doag, saw David. He knew Saul was after David, so he tattles on the priest, and soon Saul is asking the priest, why did he aid Saul's enemy? The priest professes ignorance, which is true. Saul orders his men to kill the priest. They don't, but then Doag, taking the initiative and seeing a chance to impress his king, kills 85 priests. So apparently being God's servant really doesn't help you much. It certainly didn't help those 85 priests. Soon Saul is chasing David across the countryside and finally corners him in a cave. As Saul enters, David stashes himself in the darkness. Just as Saul walks by, David sneaks up behind him and slowly extending his knife, he cuts off the bottom of Saul's robe. Ooh, now Saul will look silly at the barn dance. His men want David to kill the king, but David decides this just isn't right. In a dramatic, tear-gushing scene, David tells Saul to leave. As Saul is walking away, David comes after him and says, Look, I could have killed you back there, but I didn't. See, here's a piece of your robe. Can't we just stop this fighting and a feud and get down to the loving? And Saul drops to his knees and cries out that David is a whole lot of better than he, and David shall surely make a great king. Suddenly, it's just like old times, and the two are sharing a brew and cutting up. This one act of not killing has put an end to all the murderous intentions. General Foods International Coffees. But our tale isn't quite done yet, for there's one more account of David's legendary courage in this book. Shortly after this, in chapter 25, we learn of a wealthy man named Nabal. He has lots of goats and sheep and plenty of dirt. David, like Tony, feels he's entitled to his share. So he sends men to Nabal's house, where they politely inform him that it would be a shame if something were to happen to all those nice chickens, and that David would ensure their safety if Nabal would care to make a donation. Nabal, who is known around these here pots for being more than a little honorary, replies, Who's David? Just because someone says someone else is great, I'm supposed to give my hard-earned food and wool over? Get lost! The men leave, and upon hearing of Nabal's response, David grabs his sword and heads off to kill Nabal. Now some folk around these here pots don't quite reckon how it was that Abigail came to marry Nabal. She was quite a looker, and smarter than your average bear. But then those folks are informed that back now, women have no rights about marriage. She was probably traded for a sack of wool and a bald wakari. She recognizes the visit for what it was, biblical extortion. Onto numerous donkeys does she pack up much food and wine and whatever crap they produce on their crappy farm, and she heads off to meet David and his men, who are heading directly towards their house. She meets David, and in the soil she begs him to forgive Nabal and offers the food and wine. David thoughtfully appears to consider the offer for a moment, then agrees not to kill her husband in exchange for various dry and wet goods, and he heads off back to from whence he came, taking her offerings. What a nice guy. 
This guy is the epitome of goodness. If only he doesn't become a real jerk later in life. Abigail then returns home and tells Nabal what she has done. He dies ten days later. When David hears of this, he proclaims how great the Lord is for killing Nabal so that David wouldn't have to. Then he sends his men to get Abigail so she can be his wife. They fetch her and she is pleased to share David with Mikhail. Just one big polygamistic menage a trois family. The end. Here's a much shorter tale involving David. The second book of Samuel 24. And the anger of the Lord was greatly kindled, and God doth desire a census of Israel to be taken. What does God need with a census? As an omnipotent being, shouldn't he just know how many people there are? Yea, upon the completion of the census, David's heart smote him. Why, I don't know. And he proclaims himself a sinner. So God tells Gad, David's seer, to tell David he must choose one of three things. Seven years of famine, three months fleeing from his enemies, or three days pestilence. No reason is given for this choice, nor why his choice must result in hurting others who might not have sinned, instead of directly hurting the sinner. David doesn't really pick, so God sends a pestilence and 70,000 men die. Probably women too. Then along comes some bored angel and wants to destroy Jerusalem entirely, but the Lord stops him saying, Nay, it's not that bad. David asks for forgiveness and is told to build an altar. David does, and the plague is stopped. The end. Let us summarize this. God demands a census. Then a few days later, for no reason, he demands that a large portion of the population be killed in one of three ways. Sounds like the results of the census showed something. Perhaps the growth rate was too high. Quick, Ned, thin out their numbers! But the Bible is not all about stories. Some of it's about various rules you must follow. Deuteronomy 21. If a murdered body is found with no witnesses, you must go to the closest city and get the city elders to behead a heifer in a valley. Then they are to wash their hands in the blood, saying, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. I assume they're referring to the original crime because they most certainly did just shed the blood on their hands. Upon doing this, apparently God will forgive you for uh, allowing someone to be murdered without your knowledge. But then he does go on to say, don't go looking for a scapegoat, so that's a good thing. Then, massive subject change. If after a battle you capture a hot chick, you are allowed to take her home and shave her head. Mmm, bald women. She must then mourn her parents for a solid month, plenty of time, at which time you may then commence porking her and make her your wife. However, if please you she does not, feel free to discard her like so much to use tissue, but you're not permitted to sell her. Also, if you have more than one wife, remember polygamy is A-OK, and you hate the wife of your firstborn son, you must still honor your firstborn son by giving him at least twice as much inheritance as the laterborn sons. Hate the wife, not the firstborn son. Also, if you have a stubborn son that doesn't listen to or obey you, and you've done your best to discipline him, or at least put him on some ancient ADD potion, you and your wife are permitted to take him to the elders and proclaim, quote, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He is a glutton and a drunkard. End quote. And all the men shall stone your son to death in order to put the evil away from you. Notice that technically your son doesn't have to actually be a glutton or a drunkard, but you're allowed to proclaim it. And lastly, if you hang someone, don't leave them out overnight. Bury them because a corpse in a tree after sunset defiles the land. Or at least attracts ants. Next. 
Ezekiel 37, The Valley of Dry Bones. So one day, God asks Ezekiel to hop in the passenger seat of his cloud, and they fly over to this valley that is full of dry bones. God says to Ezekiel, Make the bones come to life by telling them that you'll breathe life into them, and that flesh and muscle shall be put upon them. Ezekiel, rightfully skeptical, does prophesy as the Lord commands, and lo, the earth begins to shake, and there is a great bladder-shattering rumble as the bones come together, and sinews appear, connective tissue is generated, and their lungs function once more, breathing in the dry, dusty air. Skin is precipitated, covering the corpses with healthy tans. Then God says to Ezekiel, Tell them that I will bring them out of their graves, reversing putrefaction, and they will know I am their true Lord because I have done this. Clearly, God is doing the work here. Not sure why he needed Ezekiel to go through these motions. But wait, there's more. I want you to get two sticks. On one ye shall write, For Judah and the children of Israel, and on the other, For Joseph. And I want you to bind the sticks together, and look now what you've got. Why, it's a bigger stick. Now, when you next see the children of Israel, hold up the two sticks separately and show them you can combine them to make a bigger stick. And then explain to them, this is a metaphor that I'll bring the children of Israel together and together they can worship me forever and things will be a lot better. Just like a bigger stick is better than two smaller sticks. I have no idea why I had to reanimate skeletons to make this point. The wheat side of me says I should amass an army of the undead to do my bidding. But the frosted side says, tie two sticks together. For more tales of where God commands others to do things when it really seems like he's the one doing all the real work, let's turn to Joshua chapter 6. This is where Joshua takes down the city of Jericho, including its fabled mighty walls. God directly tells Joshua how to accomplish this monumental task. Now since God is clearly on your side, and God is all-powerful, you'd expect something as the sound of giant fingers being snapped, and the city's walls would immediately crumble to ashes as laser beams fall from the heavens, setting the enemy and his offspring afire. No, that's too simple. Instead, God relies on something that sounds more like a witch's recipe in a Shakespearean play. Upon hearing God's detailed plans, Joshua immediately carries them out, of which I am presently engaged in informing you. Joshua commands soldiers to follow seven priests around the city walls. The priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and trumpets made of ram's horns. They carry this around the city once per day for six days blowing their horns. On the seventh day, they circle the city seven times, blowing their horns each time they circle it. But on the seventh time, following God's directive, Joshua tells the people to shout a great shout. Now, if you remember from third grade physics, you'll recall that combining the sound pressure of horns with the yelling of people and the circling of buildings seven times causes stone to weaken. That's why concert halls are never made of stone and why we don't allow wandering minstrels to circle them. What? That's not true. You can do this and nothing bad happens to buildings? Oh, well, then it must have just been God's powers that knocked the building down. I guess he had to appear in a tortilla in Mexico, or wait until the stars aligned, or take a heavenly siesta. That would explain why he gave Joshua, for all intents and purposes, some busy work until God could wield his powers. Anyway, upon the seventh encirculation, horns blew, people shouted, God grunted, and the walls did fall. In the distance, Shaka was heard crying. God then informs Joshua... The city is cursed, along with everyone inside it, except for Rahab. Rahab is a woman that helped Joshua's men earlier in the story, before this part. 
Everything in the city is cursed, and ye shall not touch nor take of anything in the city, lest ye be cursed, and pass that curse on to all the children of Israel. Ye had better not touch a single damn thing. It's cursed! All of it! Now go into the cursed city from which I told you not to take anything, and get their silver, gold, brass, and iron, and put them in my treasury. When I said everything was cursed, I meant, uh, everything but, uh, just do as I say. So Joshua's men go into the city and, uh, let me quote this, Joshua 6, 21. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. End quote. But they did spare Rahab. Then they burned the city to the ground after bringing all the silver, gold, brass, and iron to God's treasury. But this one kid, this one measly kid, Akon, didn't listen. He took something from Jericho. And man, oh man, did this pisseth off the Lord mightily. So later, Joshua attacks yet another city in God's name. This time it's the city of Ai. And he sent two or three thousand men. But surprisingly, Ai kicks Joshua's biblical buttocks. And Joshua shreds his clothes, rams his face in the mud, and cries, Lord, how hast it that we should fall before our enemies? And God replies, Get off the ground, you sinner. You have sinned. The whole of Israel has sinned. That's why you failed to take Ai. Now go find the one guy that broke my rules and burn him, lest all ye suffer the consequences, for I am all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful, and I know something was taken, but I don't know who took it. They took it in my blind spot. So Joshua's men go from door to door and eventually find Achan. He confesses he stole a garment, some money, and a wedge of gold. Everyone in Achan's family, including all of his animals, are stoned to death, then burned. And the Lord's anger subsided at the sight of a burning family and its animals afire. For some three hundred shekels worth of merchandise had been returned to his treasury. And all it cost was a few thousand men, a family, and some dead animals. Ah, it's good to be king. So let that be a lesson to you. You want to know why some believers hate non-believers so much? It's because as long as you're living among them, God may hold them responsible for your actions. I know I frequently have the problem where either I've been poking at a dead body or found that I spent the night in a tent with a cadaver. Should you ever find yourself in a similar predicament, the first thing that will no doubt come to mind is how do I purify myself again? Fear not and put down that antibacterial soap. The Bible is here to help you, my son. Simply turn to Numbers chapter 19 and all will be revealed. What you need is the waters of separation to cleanse thyself. And fortunately, it couldn't be simpler to make. Start out with one red heifer. Now this heifer cannot have spots, nor could it have ever tilled a field. Take this to your local priest. He'll promptly kill it and sprinkle its blood inside the church seven times. You've been wondering what those stains on the floor were from? Now you know. Then, using cedar, hyssop, and scarlet, burn the heifer's carcass. <laughs> but for God's sakes, don't start dancing around the fire. That steps over the line into paganism. Christians burn animals, pagans burn animals, and dance around them at the same time. Now, find someone that wasn't involved in the merciless slaughter of what would have otherwise been a fine cut of beef and get them to take the ashes outside of the city. Mix one part burnt heifer ashes with three parts water. Voila! You've got waters of separation. Serve with a light white wine like Pinot Grigio. Then, using hyssop, sprinkle the water upon the person or place to purify. It's just that easy! This can be used to purify someone that touches a corpse, sleeps in a tent with a corpse, or handles the bones of a corpse, or touches a grave which is where you typically place corpses. Lice all my ass. I have saved the best for last. The wackiest Bible story of them all. 
the entire book of Revelation. This is told by John. One night, John is visited by God. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm here to tell you, John, to write down what you're about to see. Then John sees seven candles, and God is wearing a long garment. He has white hair, and his eyes are like fire, and his feet are like brass, and his voice sounds like water. He has seven stars in his hand, and a sword coming out of his mouth. He tells John not to fear him, that he is the first and the last, which is exactly what John needed to hear to calm his nerves. In front of John, God starts talking to this gaggle of angels, telling them what he doesn't like about them and how he'll punish them, how they should wear white garments and anoint their eyes with eye salve, opposed to mayonnaise, I guess, then the usual fire, brimstone, arthritis, etc., etc. Suddenly, a door to heaven opens, and a voice like a trumpet commands John to come on up. With visions of Johnny Olson dancing in his head, John suddenly finds himself in what he assumes to be heaven. Before him is someone sitting on a throne with 24 elders sitting around said throne. Out of the throne there issues lightning and thunder and voices. A universal translator, perhaps? In front of the throne there is a sea of glass. Remember, this guy has only seen rickety tables made of hand-hewn wood or floors made of dirt, so maybe this is a smooth table or a polished marble floor, which he might describe as a sea of glass. John notices four creatures that have many eyes on both the front and rear of their heads. Six wings do they each also have. They never sleep and incessantly say, Holy, holy... Holy, Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. Great. Insomniac freak show broken records. I also have no idea how he knows they don't sleep, since he's only seen them not sleep for all of 48 seconds. Anyway, the elders throw their crowns before the throne, and worship he that sitteth upon the throne. John notices that there is a book next to the throne that has seven seals. And about this time, an angel asks the congregation, Who is worthy to break the seals? Apparently no man could do it, so John cried so much that he want the book open, even though he had no idea what it contained. Lo, but a lion comes and opens it. By open, he means, um, well, I'm not sure, because as you'll see, the seals are still sealed. So I'm confused as to exactly what the lion did. It is at this point that John notices a slaughtered lamb upon the table. It's easy to see how he missed it, as it has seven horns and seven eyes, just your average dead table animal. The lamb grabs the book. Yeah, it's suddenly alive. Then everyone falls before the lamb with harps and golden vials of odors. I'm not making this up. Suddenly, thousands and thousands of angels are saying that it was good to kill the lamb, that now he can rule us on the throne. Hail, zombie lamb! Actually, this lamb is Jesus. So, two-eyed human on earth, seven-eyed lamb in space. So the lamb opens the first seal, and out comes a white horse. The rider has a bow and a crown, and he does go a-conquering. The second seal is open, and a red horse arises, and he does start war. Then the third seal is opened, and a black horse comes out, and the rider holds two balances. He proclaims to sell wheat and barley for the low, low price of a penny. Then the fourth seal is opened, and a pale horse comes out with death as the rider. These are the famed four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are all given the power to kill people with swords, hunger, death, and beasts. I don't get the death part. To kill with death seems kind of redundant or like a bad translation. I'm going to kill you to death? Then the fifth seal is broken, and appears all those people that were killed because they believed in God. And they do cry out, How much longer are we stuck in this waiting room? So they are given new white robes to shut them up and told, 
The wait is going to be a little longer. There's a few more people that have to be killed first. Then the sixth seal is open, the earth quakes, and the sun becomes as black as hair in a bag, and the moon goes blood red. Stars fall, not just on Alabama, and even fig trees could not sustain their precious figs from the onslaught. And the sky rolls up like a giant window shade, and mountains and islands are heaved. Everybody runs, and the people on the earth do hide, and ask the mountains to crush them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. And John watches as four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, So, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico? Anyway, the four angels hold back the wind. Now, this is important. Another angel comes and says, Wait, we gotta mark which ones of these mortals are to be saved before you start destroying their planet. And they begin marking the foreheads of 144,000 people to be spared. To my knowledge, this, Revelation 7-4, is where Calvinists form the idea that there is a predetermined number of people that will be saved. Of course, this doesn't include the people that were given white robes and told their savior would be with them shortly. Suddenly, those very people appear, and the Lamb proclaims that for them, there is to be no more hunger, or thirst, or sunlight, or heat, or tears, for the Lamb will feed and clothe them forever. Being dressed by a Lamb, it's not just for animals anymore. Lo, and the Lamb did open the seventh seal, and all became quiet for about thirty minutes. I was thinking of making a pizza delivery joke here, or maybe a bathroom joke. Anyway, after this silent interval, four angels basically wipe out a third of everything on the earth. One third of the grass, mountains, fish, ships, water, sun, moon were destroyed. And John did think, this sucks. For he knew that there were still three more angels. And the fifth angel appears, drops a star on the earth, and is given a key to a bottomless pit. As a side, isn't it interesting that a pit can have no bottom, and yet it has a top? A top that has a door and a lock. The angel opens the pit and smoke issues from it, blocking out the sun. Then locusts pour out of the pit and are given scorpion-like stingers and... Someone tells them not to eat the grass or trees, but instead sting the hell out of anybody that doesn't have the mark of the Lord on their forehead. But don't kill them, just torment them for five months. Oh, and the locusts are shaped like horses with points on their head, and they have faces of a man with long hair and a lion's teeth and a scorpion's tail. So, uh, not really locusts at all. Then the sixth angel makes an appearance, and it commands that the previously mentioned four horsemen should kill one-third of the population of the earth. As they do, the seventh angel appears wearing a cloud. He holds a little book and puts one foot on the sea and the other on the land and roars, The angel gives his book to John and tells him to eat it, saying it'll taste sweet, but it's gonna make you sick. John does, and it does. Then, for no apparent reason, a woman appears in heaven wearing the sun. She is giving birth, but lo, a dragon does wait to devour her child, wringing its hands in anticipation as it sits like some astronomical gynecologist. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns. I'm not making this up. And the angel Michael and his band of merry angels fight the dragon. Surprise! The dragon was the devil. And God cast the devil and his cohorts out of heaven onto the earth. This pisses off the devil, so he barfs out a flood trying to drown the woman. I thought she was in heaven wearing the sun. Now she's on earth. But in a shocking turn of events, the earth opens up and drinks the flood, and the devil harumps, turns on its heel, and heads off to start war with the remaining men on earth. Then John sees another beast that looks surprisingly like the devil dragon arise from the sea. It's suffering from head trauma, but the devil heals the beasts, and people worship the beast and the devil, for they are powerful. The devil speaks ill of God, and the people listen, and every man does join the devil's unholy army. Then yet another beast arises. It makes fire rain from the sky and tells people to worship the first beast. 
It commands that people make images of the first beast and then give life to these images. This is starting to sound more and more like Terminator here. Picture a futuristic war where men are made slaves to make more machines of war. You know, computer chips are actually created using a technique that is, at its root, taking a picture. Add some AI and the images come to life. Anyway, I digress. Anyone who does not worship the beast will be killed. Then this third beast causes a mark of 666 to appear on everyone's right hand or forehead. Notice that this really didn't mean the people liked the beast. They were just forced to worship and then this mark appeared on them. They worshipped out of fear. John sees the Lamb on Mount Sion. With him stands the 144,000 of God's Chosen. You remember the ones with the mark on their forehead? Notice the similarity with the Beast Army? Well, here, those 144,000 are revealed to be virgins and not defiled by women, implying they're all men. And I guess if you've got children, you're screwed. Then harpers begin harping their harps. An angel flies through the air, proclaiming that everyone should fear and worship God, for his judgment time has come. Doesn't it sound an awful lot like what the Beast said? Worship me or die? Another angel tells them that if they worship the beast, they'll be forced to drink the wine of the wrath of God. And if that wasn't enough, we'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in front of God and his angels. And yet another angel floats out on a cloud, and he looks surprisingly like Jesus. He has a sickle in his hand, and he thrusts the sickle into the earth. Then another angel comes and does the same thing. And I'm not certain if this is metaphorical or not, but this time he reaps grapes and puts them in a giant wine press, and blood does pour out of the wine press over a hundred miles. This may be how the vials of the wrath of God are produced. It's kind of vague and hard to follow. Lo, and seven angels do carry seven vials of the wrath of God. And the first angel does pour the vial onto the earth, and sores appear on those that worship the beast. The second angel's vial turns the sea to blood, and every man in the sea dies. The vial of the third angel turns the rivers to blood. And a completely different angel says to the Lord, You are so righteous, God. These men killed saints and prophets, and now let them drink blood. Your judgments are so totally fair. The fourth angel dumps the contents of his vial onto the sun, and the angel then burns those that worship the beast. Oddly, the men curse God and do not repent. I wonder why. Usually when you smite someone, they praise your name. Now, I don't get this next part, so I'll just read this one directly. Revelation chapter 16, 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. So he poured the vial on Satan's ass, and it caused pain to everyone else? Go figure. And the sixth angel pours his vial in the Euphrates River, and up it dried. The devil and his two beasts respond in the most natural manner of all. They each issue a single frog from their mouths to gather up men to prepare for a battle with God. Frog messengers. When it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Frog messengers. Then I can't tell if it's the angel or the devil or both, but somebody gathers people in a little place both the Hebrews and Bruce Willis like to call Armageddon. This is actually a real location. So the seventh angel dumps his vial into the air, and earthquakes and thunderstorms and hailstorms abound. Auntie M, Auntie M, it's a twister, it's a twister. And oddly, the earthlings have no love for God. Instead, they curse his name. Then an angel comes to John and says, You want to see a mighty whore? Of course John does. So off to a hotel, the angel does take John, and he shoes John a whore sitting upon a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Apparently there's another race of beings that look like a hydra that we haven't seen yet. She is drunk on blood, and in her hand a cup of fornication abomination. Ew. And upon her forehead, a 
again with the forehead markings. She has written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. As simple country folk, John is in awe of the sight of this cultured whore before him. The angel notices this and says to John, John, what's your deal? Haven't you ever seen a drunken slut on a seven-headed cow before? No? Well, let me explain it so as to remove all mystery. It's simple. The beast, well, it's not really there. And yet it is. And whoever isn't written in the book of life will suffer damnation when they see the beast that is. And yet he's not. This is all grade school math here, man. Those seven heads are seven mountains. Oh, and did I tell you about the kings? I didn't? Well, well, five are dead, one's alive, and the last one hasn't been born yet. But when he is, he's going to a short space. What's a short space, you ask? A, a crawl space? I don't know. Anyway, the horns are actually kings. They'll start a war with the almighty lamb, but don't you worry, he'll kick their butt righteously. The horns will come to hate the whore, and the whore, why, she's the city of Babylon. Doesn't it make perfect sense? You stupid three-dimensional humans disgust me. Why can't a whore be a city and a horn on a head be a king on a mountain? John decides not to question this, as yet another angel appears and basically says that heaven is levying an embargo against Babylon, and all should hate Babylon, and never should they purchase things from that crappy, garbageetic, fornication-filled city ever again. And voices arise in heaven, praising the Lord for his judgment upon Babylon. Hooray! He killed a city! And God says, Yep, I'm one serious badass. Bring me my wife, but clothe her in white. And God looks down at John and tells him to make sure that the things he has witnessed this day do not happen to him. That's the cue for a white horse to appear. The writer's name is both Faithful and True and The Word of God. Like God, he also has a sword coming out of his mouth. And the horseman leads an army to smite the nations. Take that, nations! Another angel appears and cries. Let me quote this. Chapter 1917. Come and gather yourselves unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and of the flesh of men, both free and bond, both small and great. Mmm, heavenly cannibalism. War erupts between heaven and Satan. One guess which side win. The army of the Lord does seize the devil's beastie minions, and does thrust them alive into the lake of fire. Yet another angel appears with the key to the bottomless pit and locks Satan in it for a thousand years, but says that after a thousand years of imprisonment, he'll be out for a while. Then John notices all those people that were killed for worshiping God, and they're being led to Jesus' house for a thousand years of peace and prosperity. After this thousand years, Satan will be freed, even though the angels already know that he's just going to wage war on heaven again. But fear not, because the angels also know that they'll defeat him then too and then throw him into the lake of fire. It's all very James Bond-esque. We can't simply kill Satan now. We have to put him in a hole with a single inept guard so he can escape and then we'll punish him with what we should have punished him from the beginning. At this time, God opens up his book of life and the dead arise and stand before God while heaven tediously sorts out who has their name in the book of life and who does not. Those that do not are tossed in the lake of fire. I've got to believe it's going to take some time to handle all this sort. At this point, basically the earth is destroyed. A new heaven appears and floats down as a bride. And everyone left will live with God in this new city, this new Jerusalem. And there will be no tears or sorrow or pain. And remember that seven angel that had the vial of God's wrath? He comes to John and says, Come, let me show you God's wife. Man, is she hot. So the angel shows him a city. The city of New Jerusalem. The city's dimensions are 2,500 miles cubed and the city was made of pure gold. I assume not solid pure gold, because that's not really a good structural building material. Maybe coated in pure gold. 
and the walls of the city are garnished in precious stones. Is it just me, or does a jewel-encrusted wall sound really tacky? The gates are made of a single pearl, so either heaven has some really big clams or some really small entrances. Oh, and the streets are pure gold. Or is it glass? Oh, and there's no sun or moon. God lights the city with his glory. Lastly, the angel shoes John a river containing the water of life. There are trees of life on both sides of this river, and they bear fruit continually. And the angel says to John, he says, Dude, this is some serious crap we're showing you. It's all true, every part of it. Shortly this will occur. Make sure you follow the word of God or you won't get into this great city. Outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters. So heaven has a wall to keep the riffraff out? And apparently not everyone is dead, they just don't live in the city. What's to stop them from building an even better city elsewhere? Anyway, now, the most important part of this entire book. The proof that this is 100% the word of God. It says in Revelation 22.18 that if anyone changes the Bible, then God's wrath will be upon them. So you know it's true. You change the Bible, you are eternally tormented. But in addition, this means that you know what I have said is 100% true. No wrath has been upon me. So this proves I interpreted it correctly. Wait, what's that? You say that that passage means that anyone who changed the Bible isn't immediately punished, but is punished at the end of times. Okay, I can buy that. So if I've misspoken and I'm wrong, then I won't be punished until the second coming. That makes sense. But then, um, when did you get the confirmation that John himself wrote this down correctly? Oh, you'll get that confirmation when Jesus comes back. And that, my friends, is not only circular logic, but is the end of Revelation. Three things I'd like to point out. Notice that Satan marks his followers with a mark on their arm or forehead. He threatens them into following him. And he talks ill of his opponent. Man, he's a jerk. Everything he does is evil. Pure evil. Now God, on the other hand, marks his followers with a mark on their forehead. He threatens them with eternal torment if they don't follow him. And he talks ill of his opponent. Hmm. Maybe they're not that different. It's kind of hard to tell which one is really good or bad. It's almost like man is just a bunch of pawns in their galactic game of chess. They seem to both treat us like cattle. Second, notice that the idea of a rapture with people suddenly disappearing while they're driving around really isn't part of the Bible. This idea was introduced in the 1800s, I believe. In the canonical Bible, the end starts, then some angels tell everyone to hold their horses so we can mark all the chosen ones. And then they commence Armageddon. To me, it actually suggests that they stay on the earth during the battle. And this raises the idea of why humans are involved in this battle at all. It seems they're a part of Satan's and God's armies, at least that's how I read it. But the whole idea of using humans in a war like this makes no sense to me. What are mortal people supposed to do here anyway? Are we supposed to go off and fight other humans simply because they're forced into worshipping a different immortal being than we were? And if that's the case, how does that injure either army when the leaders of the army are immortal, have powers beyond comprehension, and I assume are immune to any attacks that a mere human can make? That's like us humans going to war with each other and bringing moths along with us to the battlefield. Moths really aren't going to aid us much in the battle. They aren't capable of doing significant damages to humans, just like humans aren't capable of doing significant damages to God or the devil. And as you notice, humans seem to be just slaughtered in this battle. Lastly, this is how I read Revelation. When you die, you do not go to heaven immediately. 
Upon dying, you begin rotting. Period. Later, when the second coming of Jesus occurs, a war is waged. Then afterwards, you are reanimated and, if your name is written in the Book of Life, you are taken to a city which is supposed to be heaven. Remember the part where at the end of the battle, God opens up the Book of Life and then determines who goes in the lake of fire or not? That's when you actually go to heaven. This means that all those loved ones that God took from you aren't in heaven yet. Not until the end of time occurs. Otherwise, why weren't all those people who were deserving to go to heaven already in heaven when this happened? Remember those people who were killed in the name of God? They were just standing around waiting. They seemed to be predetermined to go to heaven, but they didn't seem to be too pleased with their current situation, implying that they weren't already in heaven. But that's how I read it, and I'm sure you can find a way to make it work differently. Again, this is not an episode about critical thinking. I've received hundreds of emails requesting me to do another Wacky Bible Stories episode, so I'm giving the public what they want. Who'd have thought so many people want to hear the Bible? Before I leave, consider. I've personally seen numerous passages written completely differently in different Bibles. As such, there is a high degree of interpretation afforded here. I'm sure my interpretation doesn't agree with everyone's. Actually, I will fully acknowledge that I have reached different conclusions here about Revelations than many people. That book is really weird and hard to follow. Too many pronouns, what with all the he told him to get him and tell him he needs him to offer him some of his services. And you're left wondering, who needs what from whom? Anyway, Revelation in particular is up for massive debate. Some people dismiss it entirely. Others think it's a secret message about Nero. Others think it's the absolute word of God. And still others think it's somewhere else. I'll leave that for you to decide. Maybe I've piqued your interest enough to read it yourself and reach your own conclusion, which I strongly recommend everyone do. But if the Bible is true, based on Revelation 22.18, we certainly know that someone who follows this book is going straight to hell. Well, after the second coming. Since not all Bibles say the same thing. But as I said in the first Wacky Bible Stories episode, why would God create a book of rules that he truly wants you to follow and then make them so easily susceptible to misinterpretation? I expect more from an all-knowing being. I'll leave you with yet another quote from Mr. Clemens. Satan hasn't a single salaried helper. The opposition employ a million. Thanks for listening. Visit our website at logicallycritical.com. Send feedback to podcast at logicallycritical.com. <laughs> <laughs>